No, it was the blood. I don't know about you, but I know it was the blood. One day when I was lost, I don't know who you think you are. Don't act like you've always been saved. Don't act like you've always been saved and sanctified. But there was a day, if you named the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, there, there was a day when you was lost. The text says that you were dead. And your trespasses and sins. We weren't thinking about God one day when I was lost. But he died upon the cross. But God demonstrates his love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I know it was the blood. Praise God for the precious blood of the Lamb shed upon Calvary's cross to cleanse sinners such as yourself and myself. What's remarkable about the blood is that it doesn't lose its power. Though his blood was shed over 2,000 years ago, his blood still saves. His blood still sanctifies. His blood still redeems and makes filthy, wicked sinners such as ourselves. It makes us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise for who he is and what he has done for you. Amen. Amen. Y'all messed everything up. I was supposed to come in all sanctified and dignified to preach. My, my voice ain't the best. The weather done got me. I, I'm trying to be chill and y'all trying to shout and act like y'all happy to, that the Lord done saved you. like you know the Savior. Amen, amen. Well, blessings and good morning to you, Forest Baptist Church. And I tell you what, it is so good to be back home, to be back in this holy pulpit, As we not only hear the preached word, but from this place where we do war, we're saved. For when the word is preached, that's a declaration of war. When the gospel is preached, there's a declaration that Satan, your time is limited. 
When the word of God is preached, Satan trembles because he knows it, the gospel, it is the power unto salvation. And that when Jesus is lifted up, strongholds fall, chains are broken, and the captives are set free. So my prayer is that you would come with me this morning as we wage war against Satan and his minions and his schemes. And that Christ will be glorified in this place. Amen? Amen. Well, beloved, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew, the second chapter. As we continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And just as a, a reminder, as we are going through the, the book of Matthew, we want to uh, do it collectively. So we just provided some resources. Uh, one of the resources is this, this single Matthew journaling, journal Bible. Uh, this is a wonderful Bible. If you got your Bible, if you got your journal Bible with you this morning, hold your, hold your Bible up. Amen. Amen. Um, so as we are going through each Sunday, you can jot down your notes. Uh, we have these uh, after, after worship services, $5. Uh, but then also we have made some bookmarks to get, go along with our study. Uh, the King Has Come, A Journey with Jesus Through the Gospel of Matthew. And it has our soap, our soap journal reading. As you are meditating upon, upon God's word, if you use the acronym SOAP, as you are washing yourself in the word, you are, we want to use SOAP too uh, to get clean. So the S stands for scripture. What scripture stands out to you this, this morning as you, as you are in your devotions? Uh, but then also O is for observation. What are you seeing? What is God revealing to you? What, what promises are being made? What, what sin must you forsake? Uh, but then also, we not only see what God's word is saying to us, but we want to apply God's word. So the A is for application. Is, 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 is there a sin for me to confess? What must I do with this word? But then finally, P, we want to always finish up with prayer because uh, I don't know about you, but I can't do this. I can't obey in my own strength. I must go before God and, and ask him by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you, would you help me to obey your word this morning? So we pray, but then also uh, we have a monthly reading plan to be reading through the book of Matthew. It, it, you simply just whatever the, today's date is, I believe today is what, the 13th, uh, 14th. Um, you just, it, today is the 14th, you just read chapter 14. And tomorrow's the 15th, you read chapter 15. So you're reading and rereading God's word. Uh, but then finally, I, I encourage you to participate with a community group. In our community groups, we meet on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays throughout the city in various homes. Um, this, the locations are on the website, but we invite you because this is what we're studying together. And it's been some very good discussion. Amen? Matthew, the second chapter, verses 13 through 23. And uh, I covered your prayers this morning. Uh, my, my voice is not the best, and I... I don't want to get too excited. I, I want to make sure I finish with a voice. So be praying that the Lord sustains. Amen. And as we acknowledge each and every week, this is the word of God. 
please hear the voice of Christ. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a, in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. May the Lord a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. As we have been marching through the book of Matthew, what, what stands out again is the fact that Matthew is connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament. And he's revealing that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he's showing, not, not explicitly, but, uh, but implicitly, that, that Jesus is the Messiah, the one whom you should worship. He is the one who, who will bring redemption. He is the one who will save his people from their sins, chapter 1. And as we... Started with chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is the, the son of David. He is of kingly lineage, one who will sit on the throne. But not, not, all, not only is he the son of David, but he is the son of Abraham, the one who will fulfill all the uh, Abrahamic covenant promises that God has made to his people, that he would bless the people. He would give them a land and make his name great. And that the nations will be blessed through Abraham as well. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And here in chapter 2, we're coming to the end of uh, this birth narrative. Earlier in chapter 2, we see that not only is Jesus the son of David, the, the son of Abraham, but he is the son of God. Born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. But what Matthew is laying out for us at the end of this birth narrative, he wants us to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. And what we see taking place in this text, and I, I, I'm going to throw the tag on the text right here. The tag on this text for this morning's sermon is God protects his promise. God protects his promise. So as we look at the text this morning, May we see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all things and the answer for the long-awaited promise. Let us pray. 
Oh, gracious and eternal Father, we come before you this morning as humbly as we know how to give thanks and honor to you. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy and for your grace. And we ask right now that you will pour out your Holy Spirit, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your word with joy and gladness. And Father, may we be encouraged and reminded that whatever you promise comes to pass. And you are doing everything necessary to make sure that we are taking care of those in Christ Jesus. So Father, we thank you for these truths. We ask that even as sin is prevalent, that you would cut through and that you would open up someone's dead heart and give them new life, give them the, the ability to obey you and to live for your glory. And Father, we'll be careful to give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' precious holy name we do pray. Amen. You know, around my home, we, we like to watch those cooking shows on TV. Now, I'm not a chef. I mean, I can, I can make a mean pancake, but I'm not a chef. And, and we enjoy to see how uh, they, they competing, they're competing for this prize, and you have a number of contestants, and they come, and, and a lot of times these challenges have to do with you have a main ingredient, right? And they give you a main ingredient, and then you have to take that main ingredient, and you have to make some type of dish, some type of, of delicious entree, appetizer, dessert, or something. But it always centers around a main ingredient. And a lot of times uh, when they get that main ingredient, maybe weird things like fish head or, or, or just something weird. But, but they're expected to take that main ingredient and make something delicious and succulent to eat. A lot of times they, they do a good job at it. Sometimes they do a poor job at it. But, the, but sometimes it's really interesting because in the chaos and confusion of the kitchen, sometimes the contestant forgets completely to use the main ingredient. They done got the plates together, they got the garnish together, they got the size together, but when they give it, they give and present their, their plate to the judge, the, the judge takes a bite and, and, and notices that something's missing. And they say, well, the main ingredient was such and such, did you actually use that? And, 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 and a lot of times they're, they know they're guilty, they're just trying to cover it up. And they say, well, uh, you know, I, I tried to do such and such. But it's in those moments that no matter how good the dish is, if the main ingredient is not there, you're disqualified. And they lose the competition all because they didn't keep the main thing the main thing. And beloved, in Christian circles and in Christianity, sometimes we have an issue with keeping the main thing the main thing. And a lot of times we can begin to try to live out a Christian life where Jesus ain't even the main ingredient. Hello, I'm talking to somebody. When, when we go to church and we just do religion, we just do action. We just, we fake it to make it. We act like everything is good on the outside when we're crumbling and falling on the inside. And we make Christianity all about the show, the experience, and the praise. But if Jesus ain't at the center of the dish, then the main thing ain't the main thing. And our warning today is, is not to have a, a Christless Christianity. Not to live in a way that where, where Jesus is not the center of your life. Where everything else is the center of your life. The, the busyness of life is the center. Your job is the center. Your children are the center. But, but to, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you actually have to follow Jesus. See, unlike these 
contestants who don't make the main thing the main thing, Matthew's gospel, he serves up a heaping portion of Jesus at the center of this culinary creation. All throughout Matthew, we see Jesus is the focus, Jesus is the center, and Jesus is the pinnacle of all that he is writing about. And, and he, he helps us to, to understand this, uh, this, this Christ-centered theology by how he demonstrates how Jesus is not only the center in the New Testament, Jesus was the center of the Old Testament as well. When we look at the Old Testament scriptures, what we see is that all of scriptures are pointing to Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus says himself in, in Luke, the 24th chapter and the 27th verse. Luke 24, 27 for your reading. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus is speaking. And it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. At this time, the scriptures would have been the Torah, the Old Testament. So Jesus is, is going through all of the Old Testament and showing how all that is taking place finds its fulfillment, finds its ultimate reality in Christ Jesus himself. John, the fifth chapter in the 39th verse reads like this. He is speaking to the, the, he's speaking to the crowd and he says, you search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. He's saying all of the scriptures bear witness about me, about who I am, about my coming. I am the fulfillment of all these things you've been reading about. And in order to read the gospel of Matthew rightly, he uses a, 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 a lot of the, uh, theological nuances. And, 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 and one subject that we need to to understand is that to, to interpret Matthew's gospel, we need to know what biblical typology is. Biblical typology is where we have a person or a thing which foreshadows something else. So coming from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and what we see is that most types occur in the Old Testament and they prefigure uh, various aspects of the life, death, Resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. So an example of this would be in Numbers, the 21st chapter, verses 4 through 9, where Moses uh, is, is with the children of Israel in the wilderness, and they've been acting a fool. They've been in their sin. And then God sends serpents, fiery serpents, into their midst. And the serpents begin to bite the people, and the people begin to die. And all of a sudden, they want to get their act together. And they cry out, Moses, what do we do? Then Moses says to the people, God, God tells Moses to tell the people that you just, you just hold up a, a, this, this iron that has a, a, a picture of a serpent on it. And if someone looks upon this serpent, if they, if they look upon what you're holding up, they will live. See, that, that, that rod, that iron that Moses is holding is a type and Jesus is the antitype because we see Jesus speaking in John the third chapter verses 14 through 15 that if as Moses lifted up the serpent so as I am lifted up I will draw all men unto me he's he's showing the connection between these Old Testament symbols and how they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ 
the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, how they used lambs and goats, and, and they would allow the blood to be placed upon the altar. That, 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 that was a type of Christ. Because Jesus, our lamb, will be slain on our behalf that our sins may be atoned for. Not only that, but we can see those things, but did you know and recognize that even the exodus is a type? We're going to look at that a little bit more this morning, but, but when we think about typology, it's not arbitrary, though. There, there needs to be some type of correspondence. There needs to be some type of understanding that when you read this in the New Testament, it's like, you know what? This reminds me of a picture in the Old Testament. And what we see about a type and anti-type, so, so Jesus is an anti-type. What we see about it is that the type always is pointing to something greater. So though we see Adam in the Old Testament, Jesus is greater than Adam. Although we see Moses and what he's done for the people, we realize in the New Testament that Jesus is greater. No matter who is in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, whether it's Jacob, whether it's Isaac, no matter who it is, and they're pointing to Jesus, Jesus is greater. So as we're reading in the book of, of, of Matthew, you're going to see him pointing back to the Old Testament. And it's not a prophecy in the sense of this is what happened. This is what's going to come true. He's pointing back to say, look at here. You think Jesus just showing up here? God's been preparing the path for Jesus all, all along. So he's laying out these arguments. And here is it's thick in the second chapter of Matthew. He wants us to understand that all of our hopes, all of our expectations, all of our answers are found in Jesus because Jesus is both a person and a promise. Jesus is, is, is a person. He, he's, he's come and he's lived a, a, a sinless life. He's died the death that we deserve, lived the life that we could not live. He's a, an actual person, but Jesus is not just a person. He's a promise. Because in Genesis 3.15, God tells the man or woman that though Satan made bruises heal, that the seed of the woman would come and would crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Beloved, what we must understand this morning from this text is because God protects his promise of Emmanuel, your redemption is sure. Because God is in the business of protecting his promises, the redemption that comes from the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is sure. It's, it doesn't depend upon us. Because it is God holding it in his hands. In Jesus, God the Father is saying, this is our final answer. To all of sin's ills, all of the wickedness, all of the chaos, the answer is Jesus. We see this threaded within the text as Matthew, theme, his, his theme of fulfillment stands out. Three times in this text, he talks about fulfillment. In verse 15, he says, this was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken. In verse 17, this was fulfilled what was spoken. But then also in verse 23, by the prophets might be fulfilled. So this whole understanding that Jesus is the consummation of what was promised. It, he's laying it out in three scenes. And what, and what I'm picking up from the text in these three scenes 
the first thing we see, in, starting with verse 13, is the fact that Jesus fulfills our final exodus. Jesus fulfills our final exodus. Look at the story. It says that now when they had departed, he's talking about the wise men. And in the previous passage that we looked at last week, the wise men had come from the east and they came to worship Jesus. And, uh, and as they were stopping by uh, uh, Jerusalem, of course they would want to see the king. So they stopped with Herod and, and, and they look, they, they're in the capital, but they don't recognize Herod as the king. They said, has anybody seen Jesus? And Herod's antennae gets up and he said, well, what, what, what king? I tell you what, when you find him, you come back and you tell me. Herod was setting a plot to, to kill not only the wise men, but Jesus as well. He, he doesn't want anyone interfering with his rule and his reign. So if we pick up the text, when the wise men have left, and now because Herod is on to what's going on, uh, he, he is plotting and planning to kill Jesus and what does God do? God takes control of the situation. And an angel of the Lord, he begins to send his divine uh, keepers, the angels. And, and, and this angel wakes up Joseph in a dream and he, and, and he gives him the instruction to rise and take the child. Take, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. So as as this plot and this plan is beginning to take place, the angel comes to Joseph. Joseph, he started again. This is the second time he's been waking up in a, in a dream by an angel. One time, see an angel, I, I'm tripping. He done seen it two times now. But what does he do? Again, we see the obedience of Joseph. He rises in the middle of the night, and he grabs his family and began to make their way 80 miles to the border and even uh, more miles until to probably the city of Alexandria where there was a large Jewish population there. And he takes his family and he protects them. So what we see taking place is if we're going to understand anything about the book of Matthew, we have to understand typology, but we have to also have to understand providence. Biblical providence is God's activity throughout history and providing for the needs of human beings, especially those who believe in him. In providence, we see how God visits and God touches and God communicates and God controls and God, he intervenes. And, he, and he's coming before and between people and their needs. So what we see taking place is God is providentially working in the family to make sure that the promise of Emmanuel is protected. Beloved, in your own lives, we, we need to understand that God is providentially working. It's, it's not because of fate. It's not because of luck. It's not because of karma that things are, are, are happening a certain way. Don't you know if you belong to God the Father, if you, if you have, have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God is working on your behalf right now. While you were sleeping last night, God was working. When you was growing up as a child, God was working. And, and you think God, if he's been working for you in the past, he's not going to work for you in the future. God is working all things for his glory and for our good. The almighty creator working on our behalf, providentially meeting our needs, helping us to, to make the right decisions, keeping us from danger many times. But here's the key in the text. Matthew says 
he is fulfilling this prophecy out of Egypt, I called my son. Now what he's referring to is actually in the book of Hosea. Hosea, the 11th chapter in the first verse, the, the literal verse says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So what any God-fearing Jew reading this would, would immediately understand that Matthew is invoking the, the, the understanding and the idea of the Exodus, that God had been working in the life of Israel to bring them out of slavery, to bring them out of bondage. And, and, and what was Moses' words to Pharaoh? Let my people go so they can go worship. See, understand that. God was working in the life of Israel in order to set his people, to set his people free that they may worship him. That they would no longer be in bondage, that they would no longer be in sin. And he is saying, he is evoking the understanding that God has been providentially working to call you out. Now understand, something new is happening right now. And God is calling his people out again. The round trip of Jesus and his family fleeing to Egypt and then later returning to Egypt, that, that compromises what that comprises what we see out of Egypt I called my son. And what Moses wants us to see is that Jesus himself is this, this new Moses. Jesus himself escapes infanticide just as Pharaoh had commanded that all the Hebrew boys be put to death. Just as Pharaoh tried to, to stop the lineage, just as Pharaoh tried to destroy a whole people, here Herod is trying to do the same thing. But just like Moses, Jesus is rescued. But not only do we see that Jesus is rescued from infanticide, but we see that Jesus escapes. Uh, in the Old Testament, Moses escaped from Egypt to Midian. Remember, he killed the, 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 the soldier. And then the next day, uh, it was found out that he had killed the soldier. And he, and he runs off and, he, and he, leaves, he leaves Egypt for a period of time, fearing, uh, escaping for his life. Now we have Jesus leaving. He's coming out of Egypt, escaping for his life. But beloved, even as he points to Jesus being the, the new Moses, even greater, Jesus is the new Israel. Every promise made to Israel, every, every act that they were supposed to do finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus will now make, make the name of God known to the world. Jesus will now, uh, through him, redemption will be found to, to not only Jews, but also Gentiles. He, he is this new Israel. And now we see uh, through, from just this one phrase, this, this type, that Jesus, his life is the completion of the process of redemption. In Jesus himself, redemption has come. Just as God brought Israel out of Egypt to inaugurate a new covenant with them. So he brings Jesus out of Egypt to inaugurate a new covenant with us. In Jesus, all of the promises are actualized, the ones given to Israel. All of them are actualized. So now, what we see taking place, they, they were set free from bondage, set free from sin. And why? In order to worship. Jesus 
It's taking a people on a new exodus that we may be freed from the bondage of sin. That we may be freed from the brokenness and the hurt. In order what? So we can have our best life now? No. So that we would worship. We can't worship when we're in bondage. You can't worship God when sin is on your back. You can't worship God when you have you could care less about him. Or you don't love the things he loves and, and you don't hate the things he hates. Yeah, God doesn't matter. You can't worship rightly if sin has you bound. We need to be set free. And God is saying in Jesus Christ, you are able to take part of this new exodus. But what's the problem? We don't believe it. We don't believe it. We don't actually believe that Jesus can set us free from sin. We don't actually believe that I can, I can let go of this sin that's been on my back for all these years. That, that we don't believe that Jesus actually has enough power to change us from the inside out. And, and because we don't believe it, we stay stuck in our sin and our eyes are fixed on our circumstance rather than having our eyes fixed on Jesus. We walk around talking about, woe is me. I, I, I wish I didn't say that, and I wish I didn't do that, and I wish I could be like them. Don't you know that the same creative force and power that hovered over the earth and where God said, let there be the same God that reached down and, and created the heavens and the earth is the same God who's living within those who love Jesus? The same God who's able to take nothing and make it something. The same God who has been working since eternity past, to, uh, eternity past to bring you to himself. That same God is working in you. And God has, he has already declared you are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. So the question is not, if I'm a follower of Jesus, why does sin still reign over me? Now, there's going to be struggle, but we're talking about that, that sin that keeps you from community, that sin that keeps you from prayer, that, that sin that keeps you from the fellowship, that, that sin that, that, that makes you debilitated. God has filled us with himself that we may live and that we may have life. Beloved, when we are more concerned about our circumstances more than the creator of these circumstances, we will easily fall into the temptation of despair. And just like Israel in the wilderness, we trade in our freedom for what's familiar. We rather do what we've been doing all these years just because it's familiar rather than trust God to take you somewhere else. Isn't that the problem that Israel had? As, as Moses is leading them through the wilderness to the promised land, that place filled with, with milk and honey just flowing, it, they were going to have homes that they didn't even had to construct. They were going to have everything, every single thing they need. And along the way, as, as soon as times got hard, what do they say? Hey, if we was back in Egypt, we'll have some need right now. Hey, Moses, did you bring us out here to kill us? We, how about we just go back? Beloved, stop going back to what's familiar because you don't have enough faith to follow Jesus where he wants to take you. This new exodus 
And this is, a, this is that train going to a new location. We can't keep doing old things expecting God to do something new in our lives. We got to fully surrender. We got to fully submit. And we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in Christ. Transformation takes place by faith. That you trust that Jesus, he loves you more than you can love yourself. And he can do more for you than you can do by yourself. God through Christ, he's calling you out of bondage today. He's calling you out of bondage to sin once and for all. Jesus is the end of exile. Because the new exodus has come, and he's, uh, he's ushering a people into the promised land. You don't, but when you're in Christ, you don't never have to worry about being exiled again. You don't have to worry about being cut off from the people of God when you're in Christ Jesus. And because there's no more exile in Christ, if you are in Christ today, come out of your sin. Come out of your bondage. Come out of your brokenness. Understand that repentance is a gift of grace that will set you free. Fall humbly on your knees before the Lord. Ask for forgiveness because Jesus fulfills our final exodus. He not only fulfills our final exodus, but in the text we see that Jesus fulfills our final suffering. In verses 16 through 18, we see, we pick up here that Herod realizes that he's been tricked. And now he's angry. So instead of just going for one person, he goes for a bunch of folks. And he, he orders that every male child to and under in Bethlehem be murdered. This is a slaughter. This is a tragedy. Understand that the wickedness of Herod it's nothing but a tool of Satan. Remember, the word of God reminds us that we battle not against flesh and blood. So, I, so, so the battle is not necessarily with Herod, but, but, but Satan is trying to stop the promise. He is trying to get rid of the means of redemption, and he is using Herod in order for that to take place. And when we see Herod, we see one who is consumed with himself. They're consumed with power. They're, they're consumed, he's consumed with prestige. In our own lives, we can easily become the tool of Satan when we're more consumed about control, when we're consumed about power, and when we're worried about what everybody else is saying about us on our social media account. Satan can use all of that. But Herod was wicked. He is murdering any potential challengers to the throne. Herod was so wicked. And, and, and studying for this text, I, I came across, it, it was written that Herod was so wicked and so mean that upon his death, he actually commanded that all of the influential Jews be put to death at the same time. What, now, so why would he do that? He, he actually did that so no one would be happy when he died, but that everyone would be mourning. He basically saying, if I die, all y'all, all, all, all those folks that y'all care about going to die. Ain't nobody going to be happy at my death. He was that wicked. His only desire was for himself. Beloved, isn't this 
an example of Psalm 2? Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is nothing but scripture fulfilling itself. Here it is trying to stop the purposes of God. This is Satan at his finest. That's what he does. He tries to stop the purposes of God taking fulfillment in our own lives. But what do we see? 17, then, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. He's referring to Jeremiah, the 31st chapter and the 15th verse. And this is quoted verbatim. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentations. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah, the 31st chapter and 15th verse. This, this text is there because it was in this moment where the captives were taken into exile, and they gathered all the captives in Ramah. They gathered all, gathered all the soldiers, and they gathered all these families, and they began to march them towards Babylon. They, they began to march them in exile. Can you imagine your entire family being captured together and being taken to exile? But not only taken to exile, you're not taken to exile as a family. You're taken to exile separated. Some of y'all go to this city, and some of y'all go to this city, and you never know if they made it or not. It's like, it was like the, the American slave trade. When the slaves came over as a family, they were instantly split up, and you didn't know if your child was still alive. You didn't know if your husband was still alive. And think about the brokenness and the hurt and the pain that you would feel at that moment, knowing that you can never see your loved one again. This is what Matthew takes, and he said that same hurt and that same pain in the exile is the same pain that the people of God is experiencing right now. They are suffering because of sin. They are suffering because of wickedness. But what Matthew is doing, he's reminding Jews as well. Because the whole 31st chapter is committed to the glory days of the new covenant. Tucked into that whole chapter is one verse about pain, but the very next verses give way to something even more glorious. Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, verse, verse 17 says, thus says the, no, verse 15 says this, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But verse 16 says this. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. And verse 17 says this, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Isn't that what takes place in our suffering? In the midst of our suffering, it, it is all hurt and it's all pain. And we miss out on the fact that if you belong to Jesus, that God is working all things for your good, for his, for his glory and your good, that that suffering is not in vain. And that there is hope. And, and though we walk through this life and we, we face trials and we face issues, the hope for the believers is that one day I'm going to the land of no more. 
I don't have to deal with the, this issues and the brokenness and the chaos. And that God will, will welcome me in with, well done, my, my good and faithful servant. Welcome into your rest. But because Jesus comes as a person, he says we don't even have to wait to glory to experience that hope. We can have it right now through him. Beloved, looking at where this text is fit in, one thing that just jumped out as, as Jesus is, is going through this new exodus, on our way to redemption, we will endure real suffering. I, and, and, I, and I say that all the time, that I, we don't preach a prosperity gospel that, that if you just got enough faith, then you'll be rich and you'll be well and, and nothing is going to bother you because we live in a real world with real pain, with real brokenness, and with real hurt. And beloved, along our way walking towards redemption, on our way, we're going to endure pain. We're going to endure suffering. That's the reality. But, but our problem is that our understanding of this, this American ideal of prosperity, it deceives us into thinking that suffering should actually be foreign. That suffering should have come our way. And what happens is now our prosperity masks the depth of sin. Our prosperity, it, it, it hinders us from seeing just how wicked things are. The reason why folks are acting a fool is because sin is rampant. The reason why there's so much chaos, the reason why there's so much brokenness on the news, the reason why there's so many shootings, the reason why there's so many overdoses is because sin is heinous. And we're born into this world filled with a sin nature, so my sin going to act up and your sin going to act up and, and, and wickedness is going to be prevalent, but because we live in America, we think prosperity can take care of all the problems. That's why we have legislation is like just, just, just give more money. It'll fix it all. No, you need more Jesus before you can fix anything. God through Christ gives hope to the hopeless. If you are here today and you, and you have never seen how hopeless you really are, then you really don't understand the good news of the gospel. Because when we understand how hopeless we really are, and you look at Jesus, and you say, but why? Why would you save me? Don't you know where I was last night? Don't you know what I used to grow up doing? Don't you know what I said? Don't you know what I was thinking at work? Why would you save me? There's nothing, there's nothing redeemable in my character, but Jesus steps in and says, just because, just because I want to set my affections on you, Jesus fulfills our final suffering. Romans 8.32 reminds us of this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know what that text is saying? If Jesus has already taken care of the worst possible suffering, if Jesus has already endured the wrath of God on Calvary's cross, the worst suffering is not having a job. It's, it's not not having a job. The worst suffering is not dying of cancer. The, the worst suffering is having an eternity re, re, being reminded that you rejected Jesus Christ as Savior. The worst suffering possible is to be an enemy of God. But, but God is saying, I have taken care of the worst possible situation. I've already taken care of the, the worst scenario. And if he, had, if he did not spare his own son, then how much more would he do for you? Jesus fulfills our final suffering. When you belong to Christ, you will not experience an eternity separated from the goodness of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of redemption. Jesus, he fulfills our final exodus. He fulfills our, our final suffering. But then lastly, he fulfills our final identity. Because in verse 19 through 23, we see that the Herod's reign comes to an end. And he finally dies. And here goes God, providentially working. He sends his angel. He says, go to my man Joseph. I got another word for him. And the angel comes and tells Joseph to leave Egypt and to return to the land of Israel. And what does Joseph do? He obeys. And he goes back. And as he's going back, he finds out that Herod's son is now in control. When Herod dies, he, he splits the kingdom amongst his three sons. And, and his son Archelaus, he was... He was, he was cut from the same cloth as his father. He was mean. He was wicked. He, he was so wicked and so unpredictable that the Romans came in and said, you can't be king no more, bruh. And they take him out, and they give him a governor, and they call him Pontius Pilate. So he begins to rule the land. But Herod Antipatus, he was over this area of, of Galilee and Nazareth. So they go there, and they begin to live. And then the text says, Verse 23, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So what's going on right there? That this specific prophecy is actually not in the Old Testament. What I believe he's doing, he's taking a summation of, pro of prophetic text and laying it out for us, that the key one being the fact that, it, that Nazareth wasn't a, a, a big place. That Nazareth wasn't, it wasn't well respected. It wasn't high on the socioeconomic status pole. As a matter of fact, it, it wasn't it Nathaniel who said in, in John the first chapter, does anything good come out of Nazareth? There, there, there's this shock that anything good can come out of Nazareth. But, but what we understand by him being called a Nazarene, he's only fulfilling what Isaiah said about the suffering servant. He's not coming with any type of form of shape or fashion. 
He's not going to look beautiful and make people want to come to him. Matter of fact, he's going to be beat down. He's not going to be the champ. He's going to be on the bottom. And he's reminding the people, we're not serving a God who is worried about impressing us. We serve a God who's willing to save us. But beloved, what's, what's the problem? When the religious, when the religious elite see Jesus coming, and like, he ain't nothing. Who is he? What? And, and, and as a matter of fact, they reject Jesus. And just like the religious elite reject Jesus, often we reject Jesus too. We reject Jesus for the same reasons that they reject Jesus. We reject Jesus because we want more. We want a savior that looks good. We want a savior who's famous. We want a savior who's going to uh, be our genie in a bottle and bless us with everything that we want. We want a Savior who's going to do things our way. But, but, the, but the Savior of the Bible says that you need to humble yourself before him. The, the Savior of the Bible says we don't go high, but we go low. The Savior of the Bible says that if you want to save your life, you have to give up your life. Jesus steps in and he flips their world upside down. And he is identified with the broken and the lowly. Guess what? Just like us. He's a Nazarene. He, don't nobody like him. Don't nobody care about him. How many of us can say that about our own lives? So many times we may have been written off. Oh, they ain't nothing. They're, they're never going to achieve. They're never, never going to succeed. They're never going to be anything. How much effort have, have we put into our own lives trying to put on a facade that everybody's going to accept? We always put in our best, our, our, our best pictures on Instagram, not our worst. We want to be seen as something that we're not, but Jesus himself wasn't caught up with looks. He was caught up with his actions. But God demonstrates his love. He wasn't just talking to talk. He walked the walk. And in our own lives, we have to get to a point where I don't mind being identified with a Nazarene. I don't mind being identified with Jesus of Nazareth because, because when he went low, the text tells us that now, now and at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We see that God through Christ, he gives us the promise of a new identity. We don't have to worry about what people think about us because God has thought so highly of us that he came to save us. Beloved, here we see that God, he protects his promise of Emmanuel. He, he promised that God would be with us, Emmanuel. And God protects his promise to you. That for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter your, your race, your religion, your gender. He says that whosoever. God has protected this promise of redemption found in Jesus Christ. Because apart from Jesus Christ, there is no redemption. The call is to look to Jesus today. Look to Jesus in, in your brokenness. 
look to Jesus in your despair and understand that Jesus is not only the person, Jesus is the promise that we hold on to for salvation. Beloved, I challenge you today, don't, don't be disqualified because your brand of Christianity leaves out Jesus. Jesus must be the center of your faith because he is the center of God's promise. Come out of your sin today. Come out of your doubt today. And come out of your brokenness today. Because God has protected his promise of Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the powerful promises you have given us in your word. And thank you for the powerful promise of Jesus Christ himself. So, Father, I ask that you would move in our hearts. You would remind us, as Matthew reminds us, that Jesus has come to make all things new. All of our hopes and all of our dreams are realized in Christ Jesus. Father, I ask that you would move upon the one's heart today and reveal to them that Jesus is the answer. May we turn from our sin and our doubt and turn toward you through repentance and faith today. Lord, we do love you and we do thank you. In the precious and mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen.